0: Welcome Psychodrama listeners. Today we are very excited to have Dr. April Alexander, who is an associate professor at the University of Denver. She is a forensic psychologist and she is the director of Denver First, which is a university clinic that provides services, clinical and forensic psychological services for low risk court order adult defendants and juveniles. And Dr. Alexander is also a member of a Denver chapter of uh, Black Lives Matter. And that is part of the reason that why we have her here for our show this week, because as you all know, these historical events are bringing a reckoning to policing and criminal justice in America. And we thought that she would be an excellent person to speak about Black Lives Matter and uh, what it may mean for criminal justice and policing reform. So with that, hello and welcome, Dr. Alexander.
1: Oh, thank you both for having me. Thank you for coming on. We know that it's a really, really busy time for you, so we really especially appreciate you making time for us, so thanks so much.
0: And so with that then, um, maybe, how are you doing? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's such a loaded
2: question. Every yeah. day, um, again, there's days of ups and downs uh, with just how things are moving. Uh, you know, some days uh, dealing with grief, some days dealing with some of the trauma that these events have led to, um, and then some happier moments that we have seen some progress here in Denver, um, and so we had a into a great end to this week.
1: If you don't mind saying, how do you cope with all of that while still being so active mm. and involved—it's—it's it's really amazing to me. Great question.
2: Well, we've been having a lot of conversations with uh, friends and other uh, community members about self-care. Uh, that it, you know, as a psychologist, we preach it all the time, uh, but mm-hmm. to remember that we need to be practicing it, especially in this moment. Uh, one of the things that. I'm really mindful of is a lot of activists burn out um, pretty quickly in these times, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then we also are losing a lot of activists uh, due to the health-related problems that the stress um, brings on.
3: Yeah. Uh,
2: so we're 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 especially mindful of how do we take care of each other during this time, and so that support system that I've had has made it um, bearable.
0: Yeah. This isn't yeah? This is a, you know a, a, as as historical moments usually go. There's a confluence of factors and. The current economic crisis secondary to covid uh has really just complicated the matter for everybody because the usual coping mechanisms that we seem to have are impaired as we are not able to have in, uh to be together as much as we would like and yet the, the importance of the movement has to me kind of giving me a lot of hope
3: uh, mm-hmm.
0: because it a lot of people are despite these difficulties to kind of move forward so uh so I guess I'll, I'll stop with that. That's kind of just, I guess how that's how I'm feeling. What about you, Katie? How are you doing?
1: I, I'm doing okay, too. I guess I just, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a good way of answering that question, except to say that I think uh, I just admire and I'm grateful for all of the hard work that people are doing like you, April. And I'm happy that you're going to explain it, because I think there are a lot of things that people don't understand. And I think that it's uh, just helpful to talk to our listeners about it. Sorry, that was so clumsy. Just- no, that's okay. <laughs> no, no. I think uh, during this time we we we're just so
2: flooded with uh, so so much information and so many different emotions that it yeah. is hard to kind of put together.
0: And actually, that kind of brings me a little bit to the question that I have: is how did you? How did you? We'd like to, and when we have psychologists in the in the program, kind of just ask him a little bit about. Another origin story, if you will. So, how did you get into into maybe psychology, but also the forensic area, and then maybe you can segue into how you got involved in the Black Lives Matter movement, number 5280, which is in Denver's chapter.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So I'm not your traditional psychologist. Uh, so I wasn't the person who knew I wanted to be a psychologist my whole life. I didn't have a class in high school. Um, I wasn't inspired by CSI to get into forensic psychology. <laughs> um, so oh, I, I have the uh, kind of outlier origin story that I actually went to college uh, to be a veterinarian. I got accepted uh, into Virginia Tech uh, Animal and Poultry Science uh, program, wow. uh, which was a top program in the country and was really excited about that. Um, It it was around my sophomore year in college, I took on a volunteer experience at the Women's Resource Center of the New River Valley. What Mm. they do is they provide uh, services to individuals who've experienced interpersonal violence and sexual abuse. Um, I I really don't remember how I got there, but uh, wanted to take on this volunteer opportunity Uh, and then day one of the training, they just rattle off the stats of, uh, the frequency of sexual violence and interpersonal violence. And I was just blown away, uh, Mm -hmm. that for me, that was probably a position of privilege, uh, that, uh, I wasn't thinking about that. I didn't have this exposure to interpersonal violence growing up or sexual abuse. So Mm -hmm. the statistics, the one in four, one in eight males, uh, one in four females, one in eight males, uh was just astounding to me at that time. Um, so I worked at this uh, place uh, for a year. Um, and after the first semester, actually, I transferred majors. I, I said, I want to be a psychologist and
3: yeah.
2: help support uh, victims of interpersonal violence for the rest of my life. Yeah. Uh, so quickly switched majors, got involved in a lot of research, went to a master's degree program at Radford University and continued that work at the Women's Resource Center. And then became curious about uh, what happens to victims once they enter the criminal justice system. Um, I went to hospitals, police stations, and helped supportive victims right after the incident,
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, but uh, never really got to see the other side. What does recovery look like? What does uh, the criminal justice system look like? And so that's where I found this uh, unique field of forensic psychology, which is simply the intersection between psychology and the legal system. Um, and started exploring that a little bit more. Um, and by that point, I said, yeah, this definitely is what I want to do. And went to the Florida Institute of Technology, Florida Tech in Melbourne, mm-hmm. Florida for my doctorate, uh, concentrated in forensic psychology, concentrated in children and family therapy. Uh, while I was there, I worked for a sexual abuse treatment program for uh, children and adolescents um, and their families and love that work. Right. Worked there the whole
3: yeah.
2: years. And then my first year, uh, we had an ethics class and we had to write an essay on uh, what population do you think you could never work with? Hmm. Um, a- again, it could be your personal biases that uh, are brought up to why you don't think you could work with them. It could be lack of competence. Um, and I have this essay to this day. I share it with some of my <laughs> students. Uh, I wrote that I'll never work with sex offenders. Hmm. Uh, that I was hmm. a victim's advocate, a victim's activist. Um, and so... Uh, Uh, That was something where I said, this is something I can't do. Um, But while in my training program, I was working with children, uh, again, who had been exposed to interpersonal violence and saw that a few of those children began sexually acting out. And so a few things kind of clicked in my head and I said, let me give this a try. And so I worked for an outpatient adult sex offender treatment program and actually ended up loving it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that became one of my uh, kind of areas of concentration uh, throughout, um, again, that blend between fr- uh, forensic psychology and trauma work uh, with both victims and offenders who might also be victims. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of my research and clinical work has surrounded those areas.
1: Thank I, you for... I'm sorry. It's okay. We have to do that. It's part of our process. Part of our- <laughs>
3: <Yes>. <laughs> That's that um,
1: yeah, I, I think that... Definitely. I, I, I think it's helpful to hear the pathway of where you got to where you, you're at. Both Leo and I have worked with people mm-hmm. who are... Yeah, I was going to uh, remark on that. We might be about to say the same thing, but maybe <laughs> maybe what I'll say is that you mentioned that you ended up loving that work. And I and I should be clear, Leo's done a lot more work in that area than I have. But in graduate school, I did work at a correctional facility for, with people who had been charged with sex offenses. And they were uh, juvenile Um, Mm -hmm. adolescent. So Mm -hmm. to me, a lot of people like you wrote in your essay responded in a way like I would never want to work with that population. You said you ended up loving working with that population. Do you mind saying a little bit more about that or or what it was that you loved or found your passion in? Yeah. So, uh, you know,
2: a lot of people, uh, again, even close friends and colleagues were like, what are you doing when I made that switch? Um, but what I learned from that work is um, the humanity uh, among these people who commit sex offenses, that they are regular people. Um, I often tell, especially uh, I, I worked with juveniles as well who were adjudicated for sex offenses. Uh, and I would tell people in the community, uh, you wouldn't know these kids. These are the kids that you see on in Target on a Sunday. Um, they're uh, regular people who right. often had, um, right. again, uh, difficult histories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just... Over time, having that humanizing component uh, to who these people were, um, I I think helped me guide kind of my path in that career. Um, You know, I think another thing uh, was just whether I'm working with, um, uh, we'll just say victims, uh, because, again, some of these individuals who offend are also victims or individuals who offend, I'm both both of my goals are public safety.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm.
2: depending mm-hmm. on who, uh, what population I'm working with, it's kind of the same end goal. How do we create safety and healing um, and, and think about kind of uh, restoration for both groups?
3: Mm.
1: And, and you have a fantastic TEDx talk on this that I'll make sure to link to in the show notes for people who are interested in hearing more. I think that that's, that's something we've talked about in earlier episodes of the show and that we think is so important, the idea of restoration and what's better for the public as a whole. And it's certainly relevant to what we're gonna talk about today too.
0: I wanted to kind of, what struck me was that there's a parallel to your kind of your origin story. And I think what's happening now is because we are I think we're being forced in both sides as we're thinking about policing and police reform is to see the other side of the equation and to really try to put ourselves. At least that's where I'm at. To try to put myself in that person's and that other the other side of the equation's perspective and try to think if what is it that they're. It's important to them or why they think that way in order to meet somewhere in the middle to kind of move forward uh, with the reform. And so I think that one of the the parts that has been difficult. In the dialogue, or you know, in this particular mo- this particular historical moment, is for people who hear one thing when another group may be mean another one, uh, or maybe not. But currently, one of the things that has been kind of the hot topic is to the the, the slogan, for lack of a better word, to defund the police. And I'm, we're wondering whether you can talk a little bit about how you became involved with uh, Black Lives Matter movement uh, in the D- Denver chapter, and then. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't hold you as to be as the spokesperson for it, but uh, perhaps what um, the defund the police idea or movement uh, means and how that might actually play out, and any other opinions you may have on it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So after I got my doctorate, I my first job um, after my postdoc year uh, was at Auburn University. Um, I was hired on to. Uh, work on a contract that we had with the Department of Youth Services to run a a treatment program for adolescents who sexually offend. Um, And again, uh, that was great work, uh, solid work. But towards the end, uh, really started finding my path to thinking about public policy, advocacy, uh, social justice Mm -hmm. engagement. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the things that were on my mind at that time is uh, we were still using kind of forms of isolation at our facility and that didn't gel well with me. Um, Again, we had the issue of disproportionate minority contact that uh, even though adolescents um, make up uh, black adolescents make up 13 percent of the population of kids in Alabama, they're representing over 60 Mm -hmm. or 70 percent of the kids in these facilities, uh, these Mm -hmm. correctional Mm -hmm. facilities. So walking into a facility and seeing a majority of the boys look like me uh, also um, was kind of disheartening every day.
1: Do you no, no. mind, I'm sorry, Dendra, but do you mind saying a little bit more about the isolation just for people who aren't familiar with that? Yeah, when
2: kids are having some behavioral problems in different facilities, uh, some uh, some facilities still use uh, solitary confinement, which could be a mm-hmm. 23-hour uh, lockup in certain mm-hmm. facilities. Again, restrictions are trying to be done on that, uh, and we're trying to look at least restrictive kind of practices um, but it's still going on throughout the country. Um, my colleagues and I are trying to work on some proposals of how do we eliminate this all
1: OK, thank you for explaining that. I appreciate that. Yeah, not a problem.
2: Uh, so we have that kind of inside. And then on the outside, I said I would get home at night and we had the Black Lives Matter movement going on. So I'm watching TV and seeing, um, again, the acquittal of George Zimmerman for the murder of Trayvon Martin, uh, I, I'm seeing the story of Tamir Rice. Um, and then what affected me the most as a black woman was hearing Sandra Bland's case. Um, And so all of this together, (laughs) I said, uh, I need to do something else. Uh, I love my work as a clinician. I love my work as a researcher, but um, that's very micro level. And I'm trying to think of other things where I can get involved with my um, research, uh, with some of my areas of expertise to actually affect change. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And so I found this uh, position at DU. Um, I, I currently work in their master's in forensic psychology program. Uh, they were wanting someone who could develop a public and policy, uh, public policy and advocacy track in class. Mm-hmm. Um, so I came to DU and did that, uh, really pursuing my goals of uh, wanting to integrate some of this work. Uh, so in that course, I teach students uh, about, uh, well, we do Civics 101, so all your schoolhouse rock stuff that you forgot about. Mm-hmm. Uh, we <laughs> reintroduce you to all that uh, so you know that the, how the legislative uh, system works. Or some people said, I've never learned this. Um, mm. And then we kind of hop into the class on uh, what is social justice, what is advocacy, how um, can psychologists use their voice expertise Uh, to affect systems. And then we have a bunch of guest speakers who come in as well. Uh, Again, uh, leaders of advocacy organizations and nonprofits. Uh, We've had former legislators come in, current legislators come into the class uh, to talk about, uh, again, my key question for them at the end is, uh, how would you like for us um, in the field of psychology to be involved? Mm -hmm. Uh, And just having a great, rich dialogue uh, and then our students, uh, they have to take a field trip either to the state capitol or the city council uh, uh, hearings uh, to observe uh, what's going on. What's that process like? Uh, what does it mean to testify um, in front of legislators? Uh, sometimes they come and watch me testify um, and then we come back to class and they give me feedback on uh, how that message was delivered. Usually in three minutes, that message has to be delivered. Um, so I, I, I have been trying, uh, again, to commit my career to having that change. And then I also, again, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement spoke a lot to me, uh, mm-hmm. kind of on the national level. And when I got to Denver, I found out about Black Lives Matter 5280 about, uh, I think three and a half uh, years ago. Um, mm-hmm. again, I was just at a community meeting with, uh, activists who, uh, just wanted to talk about their work and in the Denver community and then came across somebody at Black Lives Matter 5280 and I said, okay, I need to be a part of this. And so Mm -hmm. I joined that group and what uh, we do at Black Lives Matter 5280, uh, we're just one chapter, a part of like the national network and national movement for black lives. Uh, So we're our own kind of nonprofit and we work on issues related to inequities in the uh, Denver metro area. So we have a community wellness squad, which uh, they usually respond to community ask. Um, So if there's kind of community needs at the time, whether it's um, a person can't afford a medical bill or somebody needs to be bailed out of jail for um, a trespassing because they were homeless. Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. The bigger than that, uh, they respond to those community needs. Then we have an economic justice squad, which focuses on, uh, again, uh, economic inequalities that exist in our city. Uh, we're a fast growing city right now. When mm-hmm, I moved here, mm-hmm. they estimated 4,000 people a month were moving to Denver. Wow. Oh my God. Yeah. And with all, this,
0: from in California.
2: Exactly. <laughs> That's what they like to say. <laughs> and, um, and as the people are moving in, again, housing is scarce. Uh, and so the cost of housing has risen. And then gentrification has been happening throughout our community. Uh, so that Economic Justice Squad holds a lot of forums, talks to a lot of people about, um, this issue of gentrification, uh, again, pushing um, racial ethnic minorities out of their communities uh, to the outskirts, uh, usually through businesses. Uh, You've heard this, the coffee shops, the yoga places are Mm -hmm. all coming to our historically black area, five points. Um, And again, moving uh, Mm -hmm. people out because they can't afford housing. And then we've also, that squad is also talking about uh, marijuana, which is a hot topic here in Colorado that only uh, less than 1% of the dispensaries are minority owned. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, we still have people here in Colorado who are incarcerated on marijuana charges for something that uh, is now legal.
3: Legal.
2: Uh, And so thinking about how do we have some reform in that area? uh, What would it look like to um, offer licenses or Um, internship kind of programs for uh, Black and Hispanic people who want to get into this industry. Um, And so we're having a lot of conversations about that. And then last is our education squad, uh, focusing on educational inequities in the Denver metro area, which exists like a lot of areas. Um, Again, we're a wealthy state, but we're just not investing in education like we should Mm -hmm. Um, And the disparities are just so apparent here. Um, And there's been a lot of attention to that lately, uh, as we've been talking about kind of reform efforts and COVID. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, What does it look like when uh, kids don't have laptops or internet in their household? And how do we get them access? Mm -hmm. Uh, So our educational squad is really involved in a lot of policy that's going on uh, around these inequities. Uh, We also run a summer freedom school, uh, which is a week long summer uh, camp uh, for K through sixth graders, uh, where we teach them pretty much black liberation and black love. Uh, We give them historically accurate black Mm -hmm. history that predates slavery because that's all we're taught in school. Uh, we talked to them about social justice and liberation movement. We taught to them about the arts. Uh, we have a person who comes in and teaches them Tai Chi. Uh, mm-hmm. we had a black business owner. She owns a nutrition company and she came in and danced with them and taught them how to make green smoothies. And at first they were like, what, what is kale and bananas? <laughs> no. Uh, and by the end they were having seconds, thirds, and fourths. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> yes. Uh, so teaching them nutrition and it's just a blast uh, we're about to hold our third um, freedom school this summer next month uh, and it's going to be on virtual format because of COVID but that will allow us to expand our reach even further this year
0: that's amazing that's a, that's a lot and uh, that's pretty that's pretty amazing and can you maybe as we kind of move towards the policing so how does what are the conversations like I guess Yeah, that, that's my question what are the conversations like either within uh your the chapter in Denver about uh defunding or reimagining the policing um in either in Denver or nationally because there's you know that that's a that's a heated conversation and there's a lot of uh the conversation surrounds around uh, surrounds goes around things like, i don't, or, topics like social justice, but also uh, pushing back towards things uh, about research. That's a lot of the stuff that I've seen. It's like, well, the, the Minneapolis PD had all of these interventions that are supposedly research-based, like uh, implicit reduction tri- uh, trials and uh, mindfulness training, and that did nothing. So we were like, enough of that. Uh, let's move on. and just completely dismantle the whole thing. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that and maybe how you, re- not reconcile perhaps, but how do you balance your your roles as a forensic psychologist that works within the system um, into into your activism and how Mm -hmm. do you marry those two Mm -hmm. those two parts of you i guess
2: yeah it's really strange because i wear different hats in different spaces
3: (laughs) 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 Uh, so i
2: often have to say what role am i in today um Mm -hmm. but i i think those two things I, i love what you said at the end i think those two things are starting to merge together um, I, I'm really solidifying my identity as a scholar-activist um, mm-hmm. and even practitioner-scholar-activist. I can do the assessment treatment, um, I can do the scholarship, and then we can apply it to real-world settings for um, the public good. And so, yeah. so Black Lives Matter, uh, the national network, uh, as well as our local chapter, our local chapter had a list of demands um, for these last uh, that we've issued in these last couple weeks. And one of those demands, um, we had two that are uh, being addressed uh, right now. So uh, first, we've been talking about the counselors, not cops movement uh, that a lot of people have started. Let's get uh, police out of school systems uh, because we know that the school to prison pipeline is real, uh, Mm -hmm. that kids are being pushed out of schools for uh, minor behavioral problems or dress code violations. Um, We actually this year in Colorado passed the Crown Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was an anti-hair uh, discrimination bill. Oh, uh, right. There are, yeah, there are kids being kicked out of schools for wearing mm-hmm. their hair in locks and braids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had to stop that, and that bill passed into law uh, just earlier this year, and I testified on that as well. Um, so Do you, you know, mind
1: saying a little bit about what what your role is when you testify in that? How do you approach such an important issue like that with your expertise, and, and how do you portray it and bring it into that setting?
2: Yeah. uh, So I I think in that realm, I, I don't know what I (laughs) said at this point, I I think, you know, I wanted to talk about uh, myself in this kind of issue as a black woman in talking Mm. about uh, hair. Um, and I wanted to talk about what psychology says about this. Uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, again, my con- contribution to the testimony was discussion of the school-to-prison pipeline.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: uh, that I've done some work in this area. I witnessed it with some of our boys in the juvenile justice system who I worked with, uh, and it's happening with girls and LGBTQ youth. Um, So I just explained, um, again, what we know of that push out phenomenon of pushing kids out of schools and why that's so important to this bill, uh, that this bill is one step in the direction of keeping kids in school uh, for kid behaviors and for just who they are and wearing their hair like it comes out of their hair head.
1: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Thank you for expanding on that. I appreciate it.
2: No, it's great because even my students were like, I didn't know in this class I'd what does hair have to do with psychology? <laughs> um, and it's like good question. Uh, but uh, again, let's break it down. We're in a forensic psychology program, so again, if these kids are getting kicked out of school for uh, their hair, then but what happens to them next?
0: Right, right. And and so in the, um, I, yeah, I don't know if you want to talk about your either the your personal views regarding kind of the defunding the police
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, ideas. Uh, either what the conversation is like within uh, 5280 of the national movement and or what do you think, you know, I guess what would be from your perspective, marrying what do you know about research uh, in this area and uh, the needs that are clearly there? Um, how do you, you know, what are your uh, opinions regarding how do we move, move forward in this area?
2: Sure. It's really interesting that we're having this conversation now about defunding the police. Um, it's not new. Um, that uh, prisons and jail and police abolitionists have been around for over a century um, talking about these ideas. Uh, So it's only being revisited. So uh, a lot of our work is just, um, again, talking about those potential opportunities. There's a lot of discussion on what defund the police means uh, because people are using that term and using it in different ways. Uh, Again, our abolitionists are saying, no, we don't need police. Uh, Mm -hmm. They've been saying this for a while. What would it look like to have a society without policing? Mm -hmm. Uh, What will we need in order to, again, create community safety and have some type of maybe restorative process for people who do offend? Um, So a lot of this isn't new. And um, uh, again, people on that side are saying, yes, full abolition. There are other people who are kind of in the middle who are saying, "Um, let's start by defunding the police. We're spending a lot of money on law enforcement. Mm-hmm. I think the figure here in, um, I think they said Denver, or Colorado, uh, is over 500 million um, mm-hmm. on policing. And so, what some are proposing is, what if we took a slice of that money and put it towards other things? Uh, so, I, I know you started off the conversation with, uh, we need to balance both sides. Um, I've spoken to police. I was on a panel with some police officers in Texas and chiefs in Texas um, yesterday. Mm-hmm. And they're like, we can, we can buy some of this idea, actually, of defunding mm-hmm. the police. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't want to be answering mental health calls. We're not mm-hmm. trained to answer mental health calls. People aren't giving us additional training on handling mental health calls. We are not mental health pr- practitioners. Yeah. But um, our system is giving us no choice but to pick these people up and incarcerate them. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's lack of bed space or um, some facilities are closing down. Um, substance abuse treatment facilities are closing down. So our only option is to incarcerate and detain them, Um, and I and I liked hearing that side yesterday. Of okay, we need to examine the entire system and see uh, what needs to need to be met uh, in order to ensure public safety. So some people are Mm -hmm. talking with the defund police. Okay, let's take um, money away from law enforcement and put it to some of these social welfare um, um, Mm -hmm. initiatives. Programs, yeah, yeah programs initiatives. So what would it look like if we took a chunk of that money and put it towards affordable housing or develop that new uh, outpatient mental health facility um, or substance abuse treatment program? Uh, What if we took the money and actually invested it in education? Uh, Mm -hmm. What would change uh, if we were to supply all those kind of prevention techniques? Um, Again, maybe we'll get to the abolitionist, and maybe we don't need as much law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the conversation that's being had in terms of kind of uh, my work and what we say in forensic psychology is uh, my push is for evidence-based uh, practice. Uh, again, a lot of this isn't new. Uh, there's a lot of people who've been trying kind of model programs across the country yeah. or uh, researching things on what might work. And I'm challenging people. Let's look at this. And um, this is now the time to re-examine that. Uh, so there's a lot of conversation on, uh, is it that we need better police training um, is it that we need implicit bias training? Um, well, uh, if we look at some of the research, we're not sure if implicit bias training is working. Um, some of the things I've mm-hmm. seen, is it might change um, your awareness of the biases, mm-hmm. but might not transition over to behavior change.
3: Right.
2: Uh, so uh, it, we're pushing these programs, but we still might not be getting the end results that we want.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, some people said, well, what does it look like in um, onboarding police officers? Uh, so do we, again, as mental health practitioners, need to come in and talk about assessment and uh, really re-examine that process of who do we let into law enforcement? Um, some areas are saying, uh, should we have people with a college degree in social sciences, criminal justice, psychology before they come into law enforcement? Um, because a lot of jurisdictions do take right. people from high school. Yeah,
3: right, um, right
2: so, again exploring some of these uh, innovative ideas to solving this problem of police violence and police brutality
3: yeah
0: it's interesting to me what is you keep uh, you've said this a couple of times and i i agree it's like this is these are not new ideas and i people have been you know for me from my perspective i'll say i'll, I'll speak for myself one of the things that has been particularly troublesome for me and part of the, part of the reason that i got in the field was because uh substance use and treating substance use as a crime rather than a, a mental health problem or a public health pol- a public health problem contributes to a lot of this, you know, the pipeline from schools into prisons that you're talking about, in addition to just the industrialization of the prison complex.
3: Mm-hmm. And
0: so to me, it's like, yeah, we, when I get, when I fix this problem, let's defund the DEA, let's take all that money. Let's just decriminalize all drugs, Take either the approach port, that Portugal has taken or whatever, and But we're not going to be putting people in, into prison for this and rather treat it like alcohol or any other dr- uh, legal drugs that we have. And the difficulty that I have is, you know, that impatience, you know, that the the reality not coming to fruition until, t- you know, 20, 30 years after the research has been there already. Like, we already know this. We already mm-hmm. know this. And yet nothing. It, it's It takes glacial, you know, it's glacial pace and or it takes historical movements. And all of a sudden there's like, it catches fire, like yeah. now.
3: Mm-hmm. And it's,
0: it's really frustrating to that, that it has to be for something tragic for it to move forward. But that's kind of the archer of history, and I guess that's how it is. And I'm not sure if I have a question, quite frankly.
2: No, but I, I, I've been battling some of that, too, is, uh, again, a lot of this isn't new. Um, even uh, here in Denver, we've had a lot of people out protesting, um, again, these last two weeks. Uh, And I was bothered by the media. They're like, uh, they're out there protesting uh, for Minneapolis. And I'm like, actually, no, we're having these problems right Right. here. Uh, That we had a young man um, who died by police just a few months ago, uh, Elijah McClain. And um, I was at his vigil uh, with his uh, family. Um, And it was interesting now that everybody's on board and showing up. His mother uh, called them out at a press conference last week that I was at. Um, She said, um, you know, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad people are on board and we have allies now. But where were you uh, when my son died a few months ago?
3: Um,
2: And and again, I was talking to other people and they're like, oh, we didn't know about this case. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. what? And so (laughs) uh, having these discussions about, uh, again, this isn't a new problem. So what is it that we need to explore and what is it that we need to change? uh, That, uh, again, as I said, um, Black Lives Matter 5280 celebrated its fifth anniversary just a few weeks ago. And we've been doing this work nonstop for the last five years, um, but now we're getting more buy-in at this moment.
3: Um,
2: And so, again, how do we communicate to people the issues that have been going on for decades or centuries even?
1: Right. You mentioned the implicit bias training and how it there's not clear evidence that it works. If I'm if I'm remembering correctly, the research I've seen on body cameras, which I thought, you know, police wearing body cameras all the time I was hopeful for doesn't seem to be as helpful as as one would hope based on the research. Is am I calling that correctly? Yeah, that's correct. Um, So that 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 has been an
2: issue in question. Um, la- last week, <laughs> uh, about 11 days ago, uh, we introduced the uh, Police Accountability and Integrity Bill here in Colorado. And mm-hmm. part of that bill was to um, require body cams to be on. Mm-hmm, uh, right. even, with, uh, even with Elijah McLean's case, uh, the cams were turned off for some of the officers. Uh, one came back on and another officer right. said, turn that away from me. Um, and so there was this question of, uh, we need body cams, we need the footage, um, and all of that. But yeah, uh, to date, there hasn't been a lot of research, but the research is mixed on what does that actually mean? Um, that I think what the part that's still missing is that accountability aspect. Uh, so, uh, police officers often have qualified immunity, uh, which uh, prevents them from being prosecuted or their case being considered. Uh, uh, and that's what's happening with not getting us justice for these cases of police brutality.
1: Right. Would you mind defining that just for people who aren't familiar with qualified immunity?
2: Yeah, see so your lawyer. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But to my knowledge, is it uh, helps to block uh, prosecution in civil courts uh, for cases of police police brutality, usually if the officer is acting uh, what is perceived as good faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, So this qualified immunity actually creates a lot of immunity for police officers all throughout the country. And that's why we don't see a lot of prosecutions or uh, uh, even trials or charges being uh, brought up for police officers when these cases come up. Um, So, uh, again, in our bill, we uh, the governor needs to sign it. It just passed uh, both parts of our
1: legislator, uh,
2: but it would in qualified uh, immunity. Excuse me.
1: Congratulations on that passing, by the way. that's an enormous amount of work going into those things and knowing um, I, I just that's that's incredible. It must have felt really good to get that through after all that you've put into it. What are some of the major pieces in that besides the body camera and um, the immunity aspects? Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: there was language in there about collecting data, which I'm excited about as a researcher. Oh, Yeah, uh, that's uh, for almost everything. They want to collect demographic data, race, gender, uh, veteran status, mental health history for anybody that a police officer comes into contact with. So from police stops um, to arrest, uh, we need that data. Mm-hmm. Um, the justification was, we need to see this data to see, are these biases being maintained, um, in these systems? Uh, we also, uh, outlawed, uh, choke holds or cardioid, um, holds. Yeah. Uh, so that was a big one, uh, because again, we've had so many people die due to chokeholds right. in that immediate, um, uh, choking and asphy- asphyxiation, uh, that has happened in some deadly, uh, uh cases,
3: yeah.
2: uh. We also got rid of the fleeing felon um, uh, component. Uh, so, if a person is running away, uh, police officers shouldn't shoot them mm-hmm. uh, because there's no imminent danger. Again, it's something that sounds obvious, but uh, is not, and we've seen it in a few cases.
1: Oh, uh, uh, yes. Again, you're right with um, just it was last night, right, that we saw that happen again. In um, Georgia, right? That that was
2: an example.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so uh, again, uh, in that case, the officer wouldn't. If this law is passed, uh, this the officer wouldn't have been allowed to shoot with the person. I think running away from what I read. Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: right. And actually, that reminded me. There's um. It, it's kind of it, the, when the reality meets the good intentions, or even the policies, So you can put a lot of these policies into effect, or even laws. But when they're implemented, uh, you know, the cameras are, you know, the data on the cameras are not going to be good if you're not turning on the cameras. Then, yeah, so if if either a police union or the officers themselves individually have the power to have access to those films, just kind of what happened with um, Breonna Taylor's cla- uh, case, um, the footage is all just magically missing. I'm like, well, then what is the point of that mm-hmm. stuff? And it's it's the difficulty of having to, and I guess that's the other part I'm, I'm wondering about is how do you work with, uh, the stakeholders on that side or say on the law enforcement side to get them to buy in into these reforms. From my, in, from my perspective, it seems like as, as it would be, it'd be in your good self-interest to engage in these kind of reforms. But I don't know if you've experienced you know, the type of pushback, what kind of type pushback you've received um, when these reforms are being discussed.
2: Yeah, I think there uh, was pushback. Uh, another part of the bill was to decertify uh, police officers. Uh, so right now, if a person is fired from a police department for excessive force, they can go get a job in the next county over. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's happened in several cases. And so uh, we're prohibiting that now. And so I think that was the big one in addition to body cams, uh, where people were like, whoa, uh, we're going to lose police officers, they're not going to want to move to Colorado if they're decertified and can't work in the next county over. Um, So a lot of those concerns were brought up. Uh, what was really unique about uh, this piece of legislation is it had bipartisan support. Um,
3: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: We have saw that a month ago or a couple years ago. Um, so there was a lot of people who were on board. Again, a lot of amendments were made, but the quality of the bill is still uh, pretty good in kind of thinking about uh, parts of the system that uh, need to be uh, remediated uh, in order to hold people accountable. Uh, so there was pushback, uh, but uh, again, at the end of the day, it had bipartisan
1: support uh, in moving forward. That, that's outstanding. And I one one thing I, I wanted to ask is I've seen, I sometimes, this is anecdotal, but I sometimes hear people uh, misunderstand how much organization work and historical information goes into activism in a lot of these cases. <laughs> And so, for example, some people who have said, well, you know, defund the police is just a bad way to phrase it. You're just going to turn people off. What would you say to those people?
0: Uh, great question.
2: Um, I think that slogan probably isn't appealing to a lot of people when you say defund the police, mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. um, people don't know what that means. the mm-hmm. um, uh, People, uh, when you say defund the police, again, are we shutting everything down now?
3: Correct. Right. Uh,
2: Again, some people are for that. Uh, yeah. uh, again, I think the explanation of it is more appealing to people. Uh, again, what would it look like if we had affordable housing, didn't have food deserts, had better education, but had better mental health? Uh, if you say that, they're like, oh, I want that. Yeah, we need mm-hmm. to be investing in that. Um, right. So I think uh, that term defund the police is getting a lot of pushback because people don't really understand the uh, uh, what you just said, the history and background and meaning of it.
1: You had a way of of putting it differently in an email that was slightly that well it was different. I thought it was a way to understand um, disinvest or divesting from mm-hmm. police.
2: divesting. Yeah, yeah, and but so th- that's yeah, the language. Yeah, we... sorry,
1: disinvest. I made up. Sorry about that. It's okay. <laughs> uh, yeah,
2: divestment from police is what we've been using as um our language in Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter 5280. And so yeah, uh, describing it in that way and talking about what that
1: is as a kind of first step. And do you Got find it. people respond better to that where they understand that means, hey, we're going to take these resources and put them on the preventive end and put it on the increasing, um, you know, rather than having the police take care of all this stuff, they understand that means in, investing those resources and what you're saying in affordable housing and education and in, in mental health care and things like that. Absolutely. Our full tagline was divestment from
2: police and investment in communities. Mm. Oh, that's good. Uh, so uh, again, if people <laughs> can kind of position it in that way uh, and, and we talk about this in my public policy and advocacy class, uh, just thinking about framing, how do you want to frame the issue for uh, people to understand your message uh, that we use all this fancy academic lingo and all that um, that doesn't tide over to everyone. Uh, let's break it down on what our communities need in order to be safe and um, and even as I was on a call with a city councilwoman and she was even asking us the definition, she said, "How do you define public safety? Mm-hmm. Uh, like what would that world look like for you and how how do we um, invest in that?
3: Hmm.
0: And can you talk a little bit about the I'm really interested in in the class that you're uh, that you're describing. And so the students that come in, do you have uh, like a core group of students who are very much in the same page with the, and the goals that you have, or do you find that you have a group of students who may be on opposite sides, sides of the spectrum of an issue? And then if so, how do you work with them to to decide, because if that perhaps a mirror reality, right? There will be people who may, be, may agree that there's a problem in one area, but disagree in how to change it or it may just completely disagree if there's a problem so i don't i am curious as to how you manage your classroom and that's just that's just my my own um
3: curiosity <laughs> then, as an yeah. educator and see how teaching
0: that tips yeah.
1: for leo yeah
0: exactly <laughs> really this is an interesting time period in education and um i'm having a hard time i think um being educator and not let my active, you know like i'm not to be too activist forward in my teaching too much because i I try to do a balancing job and I'm like, should I, or should I not? So I would love to hear your perspective in that area.
2: Oh, interesting. Okay. I went in a different way. <laughs> uh, so first um, again, yes. Uh, a lot of people say that um, psychology is or should be a political. Right. Um. Uh, it's not right. <laughs> politics is in politics is in everything. It's in what mm-hmm. I again I have a Whole Foods uh, two miles away. Politics is involved in that and what's located in my community. Politics is involved in. APA, and our research is influenced by politics, and uh, we just see some um, data coming out from like NIH, why aren't um, black scholars being funded? This is all political, right? Um, So I I like to start off by kind of saying that, that um, a a lot of what we (laughs) do is political. Removing uh, homosexuality from the DSM was scientific and political at the same time, right? Uh, So I start off with the class with uh, just an exercise on values. Um, I put up a bunch of different uh, value words uh, up on the board, or hand out different cards. Uh, so it could be justice, community, religion, whatever. Um, and people are given a few minutes to pick their top five values.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: so everybody picks their top five, we go around and share what our top five are. Um, obviously, there's overlaps in some, um, my, I, I said, I would actually need to do a study on it and collect it. Uh, yeah. Empathy is number one. And I'm like, good, we're psychologists. You're great. You can pass <laughs> the class. That, uh, almost everybody has empathy as one of their five. Uh, but it's um, other four.
3: Machiavellianism.
2: Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, this wrong. is not
0: the MBA program. I'm
2: sorry. <laughs> wrong class for you. Uh, and, and so then the other ones um, might be vastly different from each other. Um, And we might have different interpretations of what those values mean. Mm. And so the exercise is just to do some framing that uh, we might have some core overlapping values, uh, but they just might differ in uh, a number of ways. Uh, We might all believe in uh, justice and fairness, uh, but our approach to justice and fairness might differ. And we have to respect that because Our underlying value is justice. So we just Mm. might have different opinions on that. That exercise has worked well the last few years with diffusing the uh, anxiety and tension that people think about when coming into this course. uh, That, what if I say a view that is controversial? Or, oh my gosh, what if my professor doesn't like my view and she fails me? Um, And usually that exercise kind of diffuses some of that tension so we can have open and honest dialogue. And then in that class and a couple other of my classes, I use current events just to create a dialogue. So Um, That class is in the winter quarter. So it runs from January to March. And this year, um, I didn't really explain, but I've been more involved in media work uh, because our university has had this uh, public impact fellow program, which uh, takes a cohort of professors and teaches them how to get their research clinical work into the public sphere. Uh, So we had a year-long seminar series of how to write op-eds, how to talk to legislators, how to do media interviews and all that. Um, So I completed that um, kind of series about a year and a half ago, um, which Mm -hmm. has increased my appearances in the media. Uh, So towards the beginning of the class, um, uh, it was Oscar season. And so I get a call, um, can you do a talk on cancel culture? Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, centered around like Harvey Weinstein um, uh, uh, and some of uh, his films. In the Oscars. And so I brought that to class that that was one of the interviews I had a little bit of time on. Um, Mm -hmm. I said, hey, I'm taking this interview on cancel culture. What would psychology say about this? Uh, What do I need to go in? They're going to water it down to probably 20 seconds. Uh, What messages do I want to get across um, out to them? And is there controversy? And we had a rich discussion on cancel culture and how it's not a thing because people usually don't get permanently canceled. Uh, What would it mean if, uh, I I think one of the students said something, she's like, oh, of course we're going to cancel him. Uh, And I was like, so what does that mean? Uh, Actually, go to Google right now and see what his movie list is. And, oh, he did all my favorite movies, so can I not watch those (laughs) anymore? Mm -hmm. Um, And so... Uh, And then what does that mean for the people who were victimized, but were in those films and they would be losing their residuals. And we just had this rich conversation coming from all sides um, of of what this looks like. Um, And I did my interview and then we brought that back to class and uh, deconstructed that. Um, So, uh, yeah, with our students really just creating a space to, uh, and uh, this is where we talk about like those brave spaces uh, to engage and debate and do so responsibly. Mm -hmm. Um, and that class has gone wonderful, uh, these last four years.
1: That's, that's so cool. I I really appreciate you sharing your approach. I really like that. And do you feel like your training as a clinician helps to create that space for people? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. Maybe Um, not. I I do therapy most of the time these days. So that's where, that's probably where my, my head is at, but that's, I just wonder if that, if that at all influences your teaching.
2: Yeah, I think it's a little bit of that. It's also a little bit of um, I didn't have these conversations in my training. Um, We uh, I wasn't having a lot of uh, explicit conversations about social justice issues and advocacy and what that looks like. Um, uh, And I wanted that. And it became so important later in my career when I'm working with like community stakeholders um, in. Uh, communicating what the science says, making sure I'm balancing um, alternate viewpoints and all of that. Um, so yeah, I think a little bit is kind of clinical skills. And then a little bit is just where I came from and uh, just thinking about how important it is. So I tried my best to even be very transparent and open and honest with my students about engaging in this work. And some of the hurdles that come up, uh, They, uh, a few of them attended a session where I gave uh, legislative testimony And then uh, we had a recording afterwards that we brought back to campus, uh, but a legislator was kind of combative with me. And they're Mm -hmm. like, April, we know you, you didn't go off on him. (laughs) And I was (laughs) like, all right, let's explain why I probably couldn't go off on him uh, with news cameras around and uh, my professional image and all of that and the pros and cons. Um, So just having kind of an honest dialogue on how I'm managing these things as a person, as a psychologist as an activist.
1: I I like how you describe that because the idea of pretending that we're not people and there aren't politics and we don't have our own experiences, right, we know as psychologists that doesn't really exist and yet there's this idea that science should be that way and instead what you're saying is rather let's have an open discussion and transparency about our values and about our differences and about our experiences so that we're actually critically talking about it in those types of ways. And I just think that's such a fantastic approach.
2: Yeah, I hear a lot of students and early career professionals say, you know, I try to keep myself out the room. And I said, that's not possible.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm. Um, it, that's not possible in treatment. That's not possible in these advocacy spaces. Um, myself, uh, is part of that. Uh, when I'm going to the hair bill, um, yes, I know what psychology says about discrimination and school to prison pipeline. But I also have myself as a black woman who's battled that same discrimination. Right. Um, so it's an integration of both. And I think if you can get those two things to kind of coincide, um, I think that makes great meaning for people's careers, too. Um, that uh, how can I align kind of my personal self and interest into my work?
1: Definitely. And I, you mentioned that they were able to watch your testimony, which I, I think, again, that's just an amazing an impactful learning experience, and then to talk about it afterwards. And I'm wondering, is that when you did the testimony about the effects of police brutality and spillover effects?
2: Um, actually, this time around, I did written testimony.
1: Oh, okay. uh, that
2: we were in the last uh, couple weeks of classes, uh, so I couldn't make it back and forth from the Capitol. Um, but yeah, uh, my kind of contribution uh, to talking about this police accountability bill is the impact that we know police violence has on, um, uh, again, the victim, their families, and then their broader communities. Uh, I really highlighted some of the stats uh, that people might not know, like uh, police brutality or police violence is the sixth leading cause of death in black males. That's one in 1,000 black males. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, writing that out, uh, knowing that that has power, I said, You know, we can do everything to help uh, reduce our risk for heart disease and diabetes. I can exercise. I can try to eat healthy and things like that. But what can I do to prevent police violence? Um, So this uh, provides some context to this bill and then the spillover effects. people who are reposting those videos, uh, I I did a lot of posts, uh, don't feel the need to watch the videos, uh, Mm. because that does have effects on, um, uh, especially black, uh, people, uh, but others as well, that that's re-victimization by watching these videos on repeat, um, over and over again.
0: It's so interesting. Yeah. It's a tough one because I, I am like, I'm I'm torn between like look, we, you cannot avert your eyes to this reality because mm-hmm. when you avert your eyes to this reality, then you're denying that it exists. And at the same time, at what point does it just become, you know, an exercise and just like repetitiveness that doesn't really uh, contribute. So that's that's an interesting perspective.
2: And the other uh, thing that I bring up in my classes too is... Um, People have been telling us these stories for the longest. Uh, so mm-hmm. why does it take video for us to believe them? Uh, so, uh, again, our students, uh, it's a master's in forensic psychology program, and they have to work at field placement sites, two different ones in their time here. So they often work in jails, prisons, probation, parole, victim services, um, anywhere <laughs> that uh, we have this overlap. Yeah,
3: a forensic, of, study,
2: uh, yeah. Yeah, of forensic psych. Um, And I said, yeah, how many times have you gone to the jail and somebody said, I didn't do it. And Mm -hmm. you're like, oh, they're malingering. Oh, Mm -hmm. that can't be true. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm hoping uh, some of this um, attention shows you that this, this could be real. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, that the camera might not always be on, and so why aren't we believing people's stories? Uh, why did it take till now for us to really believe that this was a problem? And I'm saying the bigger us um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to believe that this was an issue.
1: Yeah, I, I think about the the psychological toll it takes to have this experience, talk, including talking to therapists about it, and and just other people in general, and just not being believed at all until there's there's video of it. And that in of itself just has to be so difficult and so challenging to mental health that I I hope that that's another lesson that hopefully some people get. Like, try giving people the benefit of doubt, believing them when they say that they experience something.
2: Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've talked about it on here, but uh, me and my students, we often talk about this, and it's been in a couple of our studies, the CSI effect. Uh, that, with all yes. these crime yeah. shows and with all these documentaries, right. we have this high standard of evidence that actually doesn't exist in the real world. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Definitely. there's not always going to be a video. There's not always going to be evidence uh, for a person who's been sexually assaulted. Um, and so, uh, we, we need to be thinking critically of
0: that. Yeah. And I actually think about this is, and this is kind of, I, I want to say, I'm going to just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask if I can borrow your 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 syllabus at some point just to kind of take a look and see for tips and maybe I'll pick your brain later more about it.
3: Sure, sure,
0: sure. But I think it's, it's interesting because uh, I, I really am struggling. It's probably not quite the word that I want to say, but I do, I try to not reveal too much of, because I want my students to think critically about multiple issues. So I, I often use uh, polemic devices and take the opposite side of how, what, how, how I really feel quote unquote in order to get them to think and like you know okay so how do you counter that argument and I, I think sometimes that my students get mad at me because I'm like, well, but you don't know where I'm where I'm coming from but I do struggle I'm like how much do I want to let out especially when I want them to just be you know have their own thoughts and create their own and examine both sides of the issue but i also think about the role that uh clinical psychology or just psychology in general has played in also on um cementing some of the part of the problem and one of the things and i didn't get a chance to post it but i i, I i'm currently teaching correctional psychology and one of the articles that i passed on to the class was this guy who's actually here in portland and he his whole uh, is william lewinsky and he's a psychologist um by training and he just essentially goes around the country defending he's an expert witness for officers who have been involved in officer involved shootings and trying to present that you know like a lot of cognitive psychology evidence i'm gonna use that just because you see the article, you can see why I'm going to use it mm-hmm. loosely uh, in a, in a way to justify like why the officer indeed was fearful for his life. Why is it possible for a person to shoot very quickly, turn around and the officer is still thinking that they're shooting at a person facing, but it's they shown in the back, essentially creating this um, you know, the possibility of doubt, you know, that element that is necessary for acquittal. Um, and I, I think about that and then I'm like, wow, that's, troublesome in many ways. Um, and I wonder about the role that we psychologists play in in both sides. So I hesitate sometimes to be like, this is the right way or this is the right way, because I'm like, mm, I don't know what that is. <laughs> but so I'm really appreciating your your perspective on it because I'm I'm trying to see different, you know, trying to get intake from different educators as to how they are, how they confront this type of issues in the classroom. So I I, I really like that.
2: Yeah, I think it's going to be kind of disciplines uh, specific as well. Mm-hmm. It's easier for us to do it in a forensic psych program because we can talk about uh, you're going to be an expert witness. So you right. have to be prepared for the opposing side or opposing mm-hmm. viewpoint. Um, so part of that is predicting what's going to happen. Um, when I go, uh, I testified three years in a row uh, for the ban on conversion therapy bill. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, for those who don't know, conversion therapy is the um, belief in unscientific practices of trying to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity um, and still being used um, and will still be used yeah. in Colorado. Um, and uh, again, it can be some brutal techniques sometimes, including sexual assault. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, each year, uh, again, hundreds of people would show up to testify on this bill. It would usually run eight to 10 hours of testimony. Um each year, again, my students, what, what, what am I going to be anticipating that the other side is going to say? How do I need to improve my testimony um, uh, to accurately reflect the science uh, and advocate for these uh, often kids? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, so some of that is anticipating what, what is the other opinion going to say? And right. how do we um, engage in a dialogue of these difficult dialogues, uh, again, in a way that's respectful and informed? Um, I said my main goal in my advocacy and public policy class is for them to be more informed people, uh, that hopefully they're watching the news now more. Mm -hmm. I see my students following a few key stakeholders on Twitter now. Um, And so uh, you you need to be informed of what's going on around you, because, again, if you are not tuned in, these injustices are just going to go unseen and continue.
0: Yeah, I think that, that mirrors exactly my point. It's like I wanted to be thinking ahead and uh, you know, argue, counter-argue, 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 like counter, um, just to make him it, make it more effective thinkers. Um, and I think that uh, just as like a final comment, I guess, on our regular or on our larger criminal justice re- um, reimagination, I guess, to me. And Katie and I have talked about this before, the the important role of or what I think is important role of restorative justice um, and as what I, you know, that's my opinion, I think is the way we should be moving. Um, but I try not to advocate too much, that too much to uh, upfront in my classes.
2: Uh, why not? Um,
0: you know, that's a great question. I think it's because I want them to arrive there before, you know, I want to lead them there
3: mm-hmm. and let
0: them kind of discover it um, on their own. So I, I, I provide kind of like breadcrumbs. I'm like, here's one argument, here's another one. And eventually I kind of, towards the end, I'm like, okay, and here's kind of what I think I see, uh, rather than at the beginning being like, this is the way, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, I I think there's an important uh, discussion that needs to be had in psychology that um, there are some values that we just ultimately stand for. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And so... uh, I think sometimes we do have to share our opinion, which also might blend with the science uh, that upholds our values and psychology of um, do no harm. Uh, So when I'm looking at um, these issues related to police brutality, yeah, where where can psychology fit in to make sure harm isn't being done to people and communities? Um, so sometimes reflecting on that, I, I think is really important in guiding my teaching. That um, sometimes there's non-negotiables <laughs> uh, right. in, in right. some of our work. That uh, yeah, I hope I hope you're noticing this. Uh, again, you're leaving the breadcrumbs that will guide them to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so for instance, um, Ava DuVernay's Thirteenth is a required uh, viewing in our program. Mm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Again, exposing you to this history of uh, how mass incarceration came to be uh, in modern day. And through reviewing that documentary, again, some of the light bulbs start going off on, um, uh, okay, what does it look like to reexamine things that I thought were true that aren't true?
3: Got it.
0: Yeah, no, I love it. I think it's uh, yeah. It's it's almost like it's. I don't know, and I feel like I don't want to take us too much too far away from the the topic for this week. I'm like, hmm, it sounds like we need to, we have another another uh, another episode on our, on our hands.
1: I can actually think of like. Three to ten that I would love to have.
0: Yeah, no um, kidding.
1: April on, of course. You just told us about all the things that you're doing, so I don't. We won't. We won't take too too much more of your time. Do you have a a little more time just to ask a couple more questions? Yeah, about- yeah, yeah. Good. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Leo, did you have any other questions you want to ask about teaching? No, which I, I think is on no, a lot no, of minds. I think I'm going
0: to hold it right there. And I just sent you guys that the link to to the article that I was referring to for, yeah. for that. So yeah. it's, it's, one of those, and I'm like, oh man. And again, I, I'm, I'm trying to not, and with the students, I'm like, what are you guys thinking about this? And I'm like, mm, you know, <laughs> I have struggles. And then afterwards I, you know, lay out, but it's, it's getting them to see that reality and see where they, where they <laughs> For are. For me, I'm, I'm
2: sometimes more aggressive. I'm like, this is unethical and here's
1: why. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm right, not I'm sorry, teaching, Kate. I'm not, well, I, I'm not I am not a professor teaching anymore, so I—that's why I was being so quiet. I'm just listening. I—I I used to think about a lot of these things, but now I'm just interested in hearing how other people are approaching them. And I did teach the diversity in psychology class uh, in clinical psychology class when I was a professor, and I—I I think I can probably see elements in both of the approaches that you're mentioning. But I—it was one of the most challenging and meaningful classes because I think that. Talking about issues that are important and that we personally feel passionately about and also pulling in ethics and values with science and putting them all together. It's its a challenge. And so to me, the most helpful thing is talking to other educators. So yeah, that I can understand. Interesting? So I'm and it
0: just hit me. Even though we just said we're not going to do this, I just realized that the one thing is that, so when Katie was a professor at in North Dakota, so we we're in a very conservative part of the country. Mm-hmm. And Denver, Colorado is kind of purplish, right? So it, may, right. it has a libertarian streak, definitely some liberal policies, but definitely very conservative policies as well. Whereas in the part of the country where I'm at is um, fairly liberal. And we get a smattering of a few conservative students. And I feel that I also feel, I, I have a bit of a responsibility to allow those students who may be on more conservative backgrounds or ideals to be able to express their opinions without feeling like they're going to be immediately attacked. Like, I, I, like it's not my role to impose my beliefs on them, but rather expose them to another reality and make them really think about it and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I'm not preaching to, to much of the choir. So I can see, you know, and like you said, there's a there's a lot of personal style but I think that's kind of as I think about it I'm like huh I wonder how much because I think in when Katie and I have talked about this it's been like a lot of times that she's like just trying to raise awareness about these issues and it just met with pretty fierce uh, opposition and it's like holy crap how do we manage that as opposed to I think in my 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 students on the opposite side of the spectrum they're like why aren't we doing more advocacy I'm like okay I hear you guys and then there's this also this other constituency that if I'm trying to reach and get them to think I need to Maintain some some sort of a, a, an ability to kind of just present these issues without, as almost as a person, an interested party. I don't know how successful I'm at, but whatever. I don't know if that made any sense.
2: No, it does. Uh, these are the conversations, especially right now, that we're having, uh, sure. even in our own department. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, what does it mean when somebody's playing the devil's advocates <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, in a time where? Yeah, read the room. Uh, we might not need that role mm-hmm. uh, at this time. And mm. uh, again, how do we uh, have these difficult dialogues with a sense of respect? Um, yeah, it, it w- in my new class, uh, it didn't work well because we had a couple snow days. And so we had to uh, abandon it. Uh, but I was doing <laughs> uh, It's My New Human Sexuality and Gender-Based Violence class. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, we, had, uh, we were going to do three controversial debates. We only got through the first one. Um, and the first one was just, um, you know, should teenagers be allowed to medically transition? Uh, if
3: mm, mm. Uh,
2: and so you had a pro and a con team, and you were forced on the teams. So, right, right,
3: uh, yeah. And it actually, right.
2: it actually worked. Where uh, on those two teams, it was people who had opposite opinions <laughs> were placed right. on uh, the wrong team, and they had to think it out. They had to get research uh, mm-hmm. because, again, it has to be evidence informed. Um, and they did such a lovely job um, in, in handling the argument. And they did it with respect and brought up new ideas and um, things that I wasn't even considering. Um, yeah. And it went really well. that I wish we were able to finish the last two because they were really provocative uh, yeah. topics. Uh, uh, and, and they were disappointed. They wrote in, their, in my teaching evaluation, yeah. I'm yeah. so mad we didn't get through that. Oh, that's uh, so great. That was, that's so awesome. that would have been another kind of skill that we need to have um, is, yeah. uh, again, taking in, balancing, and considering alternative viewpoints.
0: That's that's exactly, yeah, that, I think that's, that encapsulates exactly kind of what I would like to get to. And I, I love that idea. So, yeah, that's great. And so, I'm sorry, Carrie, I think you had two, a couple more questions that you wanted to ask.
1: I'm glad we talked about that, though. I think, like like you said. This, For sure.
0: That yeah, this we, could, this we should definitely is, leave it in because I think it, it just weaves in, right? It's like we are, you know, we have people that are going to be involved in the solution. is like, to me, it's like, you're gonna be working with people who are gonna think very differently and maybe oppose you. How are you going to find common ground and get to a solution? Because otherwise it's gonna be tough.
2: And one more thing I talk about too, is um, when you go to testify on bills and things like that, um, think about what your role is. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you want to testify about your opinion, you can go do that. Uh, That's your Mm -hmm. right as a person. Uh, but right. if your opinion isn't jiving with the field, that's where I get a little scared because that mm. might be unethical practice. Right. Uh, so you need to decide, are you going up there as Dr. April Alexander, University of Denver professor, or are you going up there as April Alexander with this opinion? Right. Um, and so we have some of those conversations too that, yeah, you can still do it. You just need to be careful uh, with how you position yourself
1: in uh, the public.
0: Lovely. I, I love it. That's
1: and, great. and again, I, I think what you're saying... Is true that having this abstract conversation as though these topics don't have real meaning and real effects on people without considering ethics and values is is not appropriate, right? It doesn't make sense to just say, let's just look at evidence here and there. There Their values and ethics come into that. So I like that you put that at the forefront. Let's be transparent about what the role is and what the goal is, and that we're sticking to the main ethic, which is do no harm. Their final presentation is actually selecting a
2: bill that's currently being considered for the legislator. And they have to, uh, they have a 10 minute presentation because I said you only usually get three to testify. And, um, I'm asking them for a little bit more information, but, um, you need to tell us about the facts of this bill. Uh, what's important? Why is it important? Who are you going to build coalitions with? Um, who are kind of community stakeholders that might have your opinion and be on your side? And then, Mm uh, what does the evidence say about it? And what are things that we, um, might still not know, uh, when Mm. formulating your opinion? And so, uh, again, students pick some really great and sometimes controversial bills, uh, to discuss, um, and again, have that critique and feedback of what would you anticipate, um, being asked if you were presenting this at the legislator.
0: Mm. Interesting. No, I, I, that, I am borrowing that syllabus.
2: (laughs) i I have that i have a reading list that i need to update for people so you can have it
0: (laughs) that's awesome
1: if there is time i two things um the first thing i i wanted to ask about is i didn't actually see as much discussion which might have just because there are so many things going on right now but reflections on um, joe biden being interviewed by trevor noah for the for the Daily Show. I'm kind of curious if you watched that and what you thought about how he talked about reforming police and the role of mental health professionals. Specifically, he was talking about on um, kind of connected to what you said before, the idea that you still you can have a mental health professional answer those calls for mental health related questions, but they had to br- bring a police officer with them. And Trevor Noah said, you know, kind of was talking about, well, isn't that not really changing the lens of people who are responding to these calls? Mm-hmm. And therefore, if a police officer is there, he kind of said, if you have a hammer, don't doesn't everything look like a nail? And that's not actually changing the way that you're dealing with those calls. And um, it seems like Trevor Noah was just interviewing, but he was kind of suggesting or at least arguing from the perspective that, no, there could be specific people that handle that without the police involvement. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. This has been a big discussion here in Denver um, over the last few years, actually. Uh, so what would it look like if we did send mental health practitioners mm-hmm. out to these calls or mm-hmm. with police to these calls? Um, So there's a program in um, Oregon called CAHOOTS, Crisis Assistance Helping Out uh, on the Streets. Um, They have this wonderful program uh, that's doing just that. Let's send mental health practitioners, social workers out to these crisis calls. uh, And when they go out there, they're less likely to have this person arrested. They're getting them to services, getting them treatment, getting them assessed, um, de-escalating the situation. Um, So here in Denver, uh, I I think CAHOOTS came out here just a few months ago and met with Mm -hmm. our legislators to talk about expanding that program. And they're getting a lot of press. Um, I saw like several articles in the last uh, three days uh, of CAHOOTS in this conversation about divestment from police. Uh, uh, If we do have divestment, what do we want to invest in? It might be a model like CAHOOTS.
3: Um,
2: And so here in Denver, we have uh, tried some of those co-responder teams um, in a few kind of surrounding counties And again, working well to de-escalate people, uh, get them the proper treatment that they uh, need in order to prevent um, incarceration. Uh, So I I think I think we're going to see some of that. I I think that's what Trevor Noah was asking for. Hey, there's some models out here that are working uh, because um, Vice President Biden mentioned, uh, again, investing 300 million in law enforcement again, which is Mm -hmm. kind of the opposite of what people are saying right now. Um, so, again, what would it look like to take that $300 million and invest it in models like Cahoots?
0: Yeah, I would love to see more of that expansion. And there's definitely one here in Portland. They're trying to do this Portland Street response and sending. Uh, it's, so it's an EMT that responds along with a social worker. And I've I'm, I'm been trying to figure out if, if there's a way for us to deploy students. and. When I was in grad school at Forest that we had a team like that, but it, it was with a police officer. So we would deploy with a police officer and it, the, the officer was not in uniform. It would, you try to make this mm-hmm. situation as this you know, scale it as much as you could, so that it feels not like a person responding in order to get compliance hundred percent as it's often the role that uh, in those calls. And and you know it'd be interesting to see if there's an expansion of that uh, without getting too much into politics. I do often wor- I wonder how much you know a politician may be trying to hit that middle ground and not to scare one side too much and while also placating the other side and kind of playing that dance uh, yeah but we'll see I think it's a it's a very it's, pro- it's a promising Avenue for sure
2: yeah we actually have a couple students who have done it uh, as part of their field placement um, one actually got hired by um, the police uh, department before she graduated <laughs> and so that's great um, a- again doing some great work uh, to de-escalate different situations uh, even responding to suicide calls, uh, that was yeah. a question I got. Uh, um, if a person's suicidal, why are you sending a police officer with the badge and the gun and the vest to right. answer that call? What would it look like to have somebody
1: outside a uniform uh, who's trained in these models um, to help that person?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But one of my main areas of interest is suicide prevention, mm-hmm. and I, I think that is absolutely critical. I think that people are understandably, because they've had negative experiences, Uh, reluctant to call the police. And yet that is sometimes what is offered is like if you're worried about someone contact the police, whereas it would probably take away some of the worry if it was like you knew someone specialized in mental health was going to come out and talk to you. That's not perfect, but that's a a very different situation. And I was able to do, so. I went to the same grad school as Leo, so I was able to work with um, the police department at the university too, at Florida State University. And I when I taught abnormal psychology when I was a professor, I had a lot of um undergraduate criminal justice majors who wanted to go on to be police officers. And one of the discussions that we had was exactly this: like, how do we have police officers
3: who mm-hmm.
1: there's such variable training and and um handling and de-escalating and working with um calls that are basically mental health types of calls? And the students were so thoughtful in generating solutions and ideas all the way back to preventing so many mental health distress calls in the first place Mm by expanding outpatient affordable quality services so that you don't wait until someone's to the point where they're in, you know, it's an emergency situation. And so I'm glad we talked about teaching this because I do think that is, right, this is, Part of the idea Absolutely. of changing society Absolutely. is is having these types of discussions and and pathways.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and having that multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary mm-hmm. discussion of this. Um, that yeah, we do need to be connecting with uh, researchers like you uh, when when talking about this issue because uh, that's what I got a I got interviewed about a few months ago. Was again uh, somebody called the emergency hotline that we have uh, for children if they're worried about someone here. Um, they called for a friend and said, yeah, my friend is expressing suicidal ideation. And again, this police officer shows up to this 14 year old girl's house. Um, um, and again, what, what message is that sending? I'm going to be criminalized for these Mm -hmm. mental health feelings I'm having. Um, Mm -hmm. and so again, how do we work together to create better approaches to that?
1: And it's such a scary moment to have, to feel, you know, when someone is in that state where they want to kill themselves and then to feel like they're going to get into trouble or they don't know what's going to happen. And there are some beautiful examples of ways things are handled by some police officers when individuals are in suicidal crisis. But even seeing someone in the uniform with a gun and all that other stuff is really can be just, it can add more distress. And as we talked about, from the police officer's perspective, that's, maybe not the main thing that they wanted to be doing when they mm-hmm. took the job. And so, right. so I, I really like how you're talking about that, um, investing in other areas. If you have time for one more question, I was wondering if you watched Dave Chappelle's, um, release, oh, yeah. I don't know if it's a, a special, but 846 yep. specifically focusing on George Floyd. And, um, what did you think of it overall? Um, uh,
2: I know my kind of first reaction was, um, it was a different side of Chappelle. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I think he even said it during the special, wait, am I even doing comedy right now? Um, Right. Because it is such a tense time. And so uh, to see um, someone, a celebrity figure, a black man, to get up there and talk about uh, how this uh, issue of police brutality has affected him, uh, that was something that I I don't know Mm -hmm. if we've seen it from his type of lens before, uh, that mm. he showed a lot of vulnerability in uh kind of discussing the issue. Um again, uh just thinking about platform and how celebrities should or shouldn't use this platform. Yeah. I, I know there's been a lot of questions surrounding that of okay, we have celebrities uh either making statements or not making statements, organizations and corporations making statements or not making statements. And again, uh what are we asking of them? Uh In some ways, I think um, the public is wanting to see uh, these people uh, express an opinion because they are public figures, they are respected, and uh, they Mm. have privilege. Um, So um, how are they using their celebrity platform to have these messages? But then I think it's a double-edged sword because some of these individuals and companies don't know how to have this discussion. Mm -hmm. Um, or discuss it appropriately. So even with Dave Chappelle not naming a single um, Black woman or Black trans person who was um, uh, killed by police, uh, that was a big missing gap. um, That, again, uh, we're still seeking justice for Breonna Taylor um, uh, during this time. Uh, Her case was uh, so sad of her being at home in bed. I
3: hate that case.
2: Uh, And and so, you know, we want to... I know a tenet of Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter 5280 is making sure that we center Black women and making sure Mm. that we're centering uh, Black LGBTQ folks. Mm. Uh, uh, Because we know marginalization exists uh, intersectionally uh, with those populations, too. And um, it's just sad to see them continuously being erased from this conversation. And then the same with uh, these corporations. Uh, You did your Blackout Tuesday um, mm-hmm. You wrote your statement, but what are you actually doing for the movement?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and I love that so many activists have been calling some of these corporations out. Uh, some of them on Twitter, were uh, they said, hey, we support all of our Black employees. And somebody would say, but you haven't paid several of us uh, in X amount <laughs> of months uh, for some of our freelance work. Um, and so, uh, again, We don't want people to be engaging in performative allyship Mm -hmm. or performative activism. Uh, we're, We're hoping in this kind of movement to see actual change. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, Chappelle's special was, uh, kind of balancing that. Um, and he walked through it. Do you need, wh- why do you need me to say something? There are mm-hmm. so many other people saying it. Uh, and I like that message too, that, uh, we can't just rely on our celebrities' words, uh, to be engaged in this movement, uh, that again, people have been saying this, um, stuff for a long time. Police brutality has existed for a long mm-hmm. time, uh, since the beginning of policing, Uh, So, uh, you know, our focus needs to be in our communities.
0: Yeah, it was really interesting. I'm of of two minds regarding uh, asking people in the public public eye and celebrities about their opinion about issues. And I think that um, Dave Chappelle made a good job of saying, you know, the streets are speaking for themselves, that they don't need my voice, they're doing a great job of it, whether I'm here or not, the message is being sent. And on the other hand, I do have lots of respect for people who already have that um, the status or the, that ability to, to be in the public eye to make a statement. And, you know, in the current, in the Black Lives Movement, uh, Colin Kaepernick has definitely been the emblem of that. But that tradition goes way back, way, way, way back, but, you know, Muhammad Ali, who uh, faced federal charges basically in order, because he was not, go, in order to not go to Vietnam all the way to... Uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos in the Olympics in 1968, mm-hmm. right? So this is, it, it goes way back. And so I, I have a lot of respect for the people who are willing and take that risk, because it is a risk. It, it, it's a career ender. Uh, it was a career ender for Colin Kaepernick. Muhammad Ali's um, career was absolutely affected by it. And so are the people who were willing to stand up and, start, and you know, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, for Christ's sake, you know, they, they were stripped of their medals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I, I have a lot of respect for that, and I also respect that that other position is like, and, and you know, in Dave's tradition, I think is very funny. His other like, you know, you know ja Rule, What do you think about?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, <laughs> you know do, do we really do we really need that uh, that opinion? No, maybe not. But I do I do see I, when I think about the larger issue, humans. We are a social species, and we do see for. People who make a make a statement in order and it sways a group of population. It could have a, a and it could have um, uh, a blowback effect, I guess. And
2: but I think that's
0: kind of the movement for, moves forward. I guess. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, one of my uh, messages um, in just reflecting on these last few weeks too is um, people can engage in activism in a lot of different ways. For uh, sure. So you know, if I don't see a celebrity, I'm not going to make anything of it. They could be doing other things. They could be showing. I saw a few did show up to rallies in uh, Minneapolis. Um, others might give money. Others might be feeding communities right now because COVID's mm-hmm. still going on. Um, so we have to reflect that there's uh, so many different ways to engage at this point. Uh, we, we've had so many messages uh, at BLM5280 in the last couple of weeks. They said, "Where are you uh, protesting? Uh, where are you marching? Where's tonight's march?" We've only done like a couple direct actions during this like two-week span. Mm. Um, one of the reasons is COVID's still real.
3: <laughs> right. Uh,
2: yeah. That uh, we're really mindful of that. Uh, that uh, COVID is also disproportionately affecting um, uh, populations of color and communities of color, and it's probably not safe to go out there and po- protest. It's a risk. Um, well, sure. And some of our members sure. couldn't protest because uh, they uh, do have disabilities or they are immunocompromised. Um, so it's especially important that they're not out there. Um, so that's like first and foremost, we're like right. we still have to center this conversation around COVID, um, and that's not safe to do that. And then two, we're doing 500 other things in these oh, last weeks right. yeah. <laughs> uh, in helping our community with the bail yeah. funds. We're uh, launching an action hub tomorrow at um, a Liberation Pride events, and our action hub is going to have uh, all sorts of supplies and information uh, for folks uh, who are out there marching at tomorrow's um, uh, Liberation Pride event. Um, and so, you know, we and 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 we were putting our name on some of this legislation to get police out of schools and to uh, support the police accountability bill. So um, every time somebody asks us about a march, we're like, we're doing so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so we we have to think about that, too, for others, uh, that others might be doing work, but it might not be outwardly facing um, or they're continuing work that's been going on for a long time. We, we've been marching for a long time. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. We don't have the need to march in this moment. That we have to do some other things uh, again to support our community right now.
0: I love that. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I think that that yeah, remember There's 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 so many pathways through the same end, and we need all of those being activated. And mm-hmm. th- there's a lot of work to be left. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, thank you. Anything else?
1: No. I well. I guess I, got, I, guess. I want
0: to ask about Jacks. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. So, I will say, so. It, it, it so hi April. So it kind has turned into our like our I don't know if it, just to end in a lighter note. If you like, I've seen that you you have a, an adorable uh, little Yorkie in your Twitter feed, uh, Jax, and we here like at Psychodrama are making a very not so not so uh, not so subtle effort to try to get sponsorship from Purina, but it has really backfired every time because. <laughs> Nobody does, or everybody kind of just dumps some puree <laughs> So tell us, about, tell us about Jax. You know, how he, I know that he's part of your self-care team. So tell us about Jax and uh, anything you want to tell us about him before we yeah, go out.
2: He is. Uh, Jax is important to all my work. Uh, some of those classes that I talked about, he actually attended those classes. <laughs> um, he has attended some of these um, press interviews. So he's a big part of all this. Uh, he, <laughs> uh, like you mentioned, he's a uh, he's seven years old. He's a Schnorky, so he's actually miniature Schnauzer oh, oh, oh. and Yorkie.
1: Oh my Schnalky.
3: gosh! Yes, <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah uh, if you go to Instagram, there's Schnorkies of Instagram. You see bunch of them <laughs> on there, and they're all super cute. Um, and they just have really fiery personalities. They're really active and engaged. He comes to some of these uh, events with me. Awesome. Uh, so, uh, yes, he is a dog activist
3: as well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and with that, thank you so much for, for coming over. I know you, you, you are clearly very, very busy these days and we so appreciate your, your time. This is, it's been great.
1: Absolutely. I appreciate all that you're doing and taking the time to talk to us about sure. it. I'm just thank you. extremely grateful. Thank you so much.
2: No, I'm just happy to continue these conversations and uh, again, seeing the place where psychology can have an impact on these uh, bigger social issues is so important to me.